Christ Community Church, located at 25th and Thomas Avenue in Portsmouth, Ohio. Christ Community meets on Saturday at 5 p.m. and Sunday at 10.30 a.m. For more information, visit www.christcommunity.net or check out our Facebook page. Good morning, sports fans. Yeah. Congratulations to those parents of the graduates. I trust and pray that your investment will turn out to be just a really good one. Thank you, Kayla. <clears throat> just a reminder that the uh, daily devotionals for the next three months are on the table back there. It's really a good idea for you to have one, and it's good for us to really uh, have them together. And it's kind of a, a thing for the congregation. They're provided at, uh, at uh, you don't have to pay for them. You just want you to read them and take them seriously. Everybody needs to have a few minutes with the Lord each day, and that allows that to happen. And so I encourage you along that line. <clears throat> now, this morning, because of the nature of the sermon, I have to kind of hustle along, but um, we're talking about Elijah as a prophet. Elijah probably, other than Jesus, is the one person in the Bible that I admire probably more than any other. He was a great preacher because a prophet his primary responsibility is to be a preacher. That's his primary responsibility. And he was an exceptional preacher. And uh, he did, when I was in preaching school, in, in, in preaching class in seminary, they told us that there were three cardinal sins for a pulpit preacher. I don't, I'm not going into all of them. I'm just going to tell you that one of them was being boring. You can think about that all you want to, but uh, Elijah was everything but boring. What he did as a prophet in order to emphasize his message would probably embarrass each of you. But nonetheless, he did it even with the encouragement of God himself. He was one of those guys who appeared to be fearless. But that was only an appearance. It was because he knew of the presence and the providential care of God that caused him to do some things that otherwise would have scared him to death. It'll, I'll sound like I'm bragging just a little bit, but I don't mean that at all. But for whatever reason, and I can't give you a reason, don't know, that I have lived my life with that sense of, of fearlessness on more than one instance, in about a half a dozen, really, through the years, I've uh, had the responsibility of taking a gun from the hand of somebody who is either going to shoot somebody else or shoot themselves. The first time it happened, I was a youth minister in Columbus, Indiana. I'll mention that again before I'm done. This guy had uh, found out that his wife was cheating on him, and she called me and said he took the gun, and I think he's going to kill himself. So... I, I took a guess at where I could find him and 
there he sat by himself in an open parking lot and I pulled in and got in the car with him and the only thing that I said that might indicate a little bit of cowardice was would you turn the rifle toward the other door because he was sitting there with his lap pointing right at me and it is a tad discomforting but through the years I think I've collected about six different guns from people and I didn't give them back Elijah as a prophet did some things that under the guidance of God did some things as I said that would probably embarrass you if that was your preacher he wasn't the only one Isaiah did the same was prone to do the same thing and we'll talk about and he and Jeremiah but I was told as I, I was a, as a very young preacher in my early 20s I was taken under the wing of a couple of older preachers who really watched me carefully and um, gave sometimes stern advice old Joe Dampier was one of them a big old guy with a gut that hung out to hear and a voice deep enough that you know just a really deep voice and he was the one he he would give me little tidbits to and he the one that I remember more than any other was he said Scott, you must remember that your primary calling as a preacher of the gospel is to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable. And he said sometimes the latter gets to be uh, a little scary. One of the guys who wrote the book called Christians Only, old J.D. Murch, and uh, he he was the one who told me he said as a preacher and at at the time i was had a congregation maybe of four or five hundred people and he was there for a week with me and then he stayed in touch he said as a preacher your responsibility is to say what false prophets or false preachers refuse to say you think about that a little bit it gets to be a pretty tough assignment because false teachers and false preachers are in it primarily for their own benefit. And I was told that in, and from Scripture on numerous instances by both of these men, if you're going to be an effective preacher of the Bible, you must be willing to deny yourself daily, take up the cross and follow Jesus. And that has to be the number one verse of your life. I don't know that it's always been that way, but uh, that was the guidance that was given. And because of that, and because of who Elijah and the other prophets were, I'll probably say some things this morning that may make you uncomfortable, even though now it doesn't make me uncomfortable to say it, okay? So before I read Scripture, let me read you something from your constitution of our country that was put together by men who had a great respect for the church. The primary influence probably was Thomas Jefferson. And Jefferson 
was a great friend of the church, even though he was accused of being a deist, and he probably was. He even allowed the church to use the federal buildings when he was president to hold church. He was a strong supporter of the church itself. And when he put together the Constitution, the First Amendment addressed that subject because most of the country at that time had come from Western Europe. And in Western Europe, nearly all of those countries had what was called a state religion. If you were to go to Germany today, you would find the state religion of Germany is the Lutheran Church. In other countries, it's a Catholic Church. But there was a, there was a church, and the, and, the, and the preacher is actually paid by the state, not the congregation. And they're paid very well. Here's what he wrote, because he thought that that was a really bad deal. He wrote, Congress shall make no law representing the establishment of religion. In other words, Congress should not declare a state church. So he said, Congress shall make no law respecting the establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. That clause in the Constitution is referred to as the Establishment Clause. And it's extremely important if we're going to have the freedom to do what the church was intended to do and what the prophets of God were assigned to do. And that's to hold the government leaders responsible. To confront them and to hold them responsible. Today, because people are so uh, committed to one party or the other instead of the kingdom of God, that when you start uh, uh, holding political people responsible, they take it as a, an assault upon the party and they get mad and they leave and they do all kinds of silly things. I can only speak for myself in saying that I never hear make a statement like that that I can't defend because I, if it's a matter of opinion, I will say this is my opinion and yours is as good as mine. Maybe. The Old Testament prophets had a flair for the dramatic. I kind of like that, to be honest with you. It kind of keeps people awake. And when you go over into um, the book of Isaiah, Isaiah was a, uh, was a court prophet. That meant he actually was in residence of the king. He stayed, he lived there and had access to the king anytime he wanted, really. A lot in the, New, in the Old Testament it was written by him and, and much of it in the 53rd chapter in particular quoted in the New Testament. But here in the 20th chapter of the book of Isaiah, it's, it's kind of interesting. It said, In the year that the supreme commander sent by Sargon, king of Assyria, came to Ashdod and attacked and captured it, at that time the Lord spoke through Isaiah, son of Amos. He said to him, Take off the sackcloth from your body and the sandals from your feet. And he did so, going around stripped, that means naked, and barefooted. I believe Alice Kay would probably 
make life miserable for me should I attempt that particular task of dramatizing the Word of God. Isaiah was followed by Jeremiah, who, and what they were doing was saying, look, unless you repent and turn from your, primarily the worship of pagan gods, unless you repent, what I have volunteered to do, you're going to be made to do. You will be stripped clean. You'll have a ring put through your nose, and you'll be tied to the, to the person in front of you with a ring through their nose, and you will be led into captivity. Actually, Jeremiah used another mechanism. Jeremiah walked around a long time carrying a yoke around. I don't know whether you've ever seen a, an ox yoke or not. I, I have a time or two. My dad actually worked them. But they're made out of wood, and they can be pretty heavy. Jeremiah toted this thing around for a good period of time, saying that unless you repent, you will have an iron yoke put on your neck, and you will be carried off into captivity. You've got to give up your gods and follow the true and the living God. He was very strong about that. And it's there in the 28th chapter, in, I'd say, verses probably 13 and 14, he said, This is what the Lord says. You have broken a wooden yoke, but it's in its place you will get a yoke of iron. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. I will put an iron yoke on your neck of all these nations to make them serve Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and they will serve him. He was, he was dramatizing the fact of the necessity of worshiping God. And so he walked around prophesying and saying, this is what's going to happen to you. It was his way of dramatizing because the people just weren't listening. They just weren't listening. In the New Testament, you have uh, the, um, the person who Jesus said, of all the prophets, there's none greater than he. He was speaking of John the Baptist. Actually, John the Baptist inherited the spirit of Elijah. And uh, the scripture is, is very clear about his responsibilities. Elijah came along, and according to Matthew's recording this in the third chapter, fourth verse, it was his dress that was dramatic. It said, John's clothes were made of camel hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist, and his, and his food was locusts and wild honey. The wild honey I could take. The bugs would have to go, I think. And, uh, but he was, he was very dramatic, and, 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 and if you look carefully in the New Testament of what Peter wrote about him, uh, actually John wrote it down, uh, in the ninth chapter of, of the Gospel of John, he talks about John the Baptist having the spirit of Elijah. And, um, and there's a lot of false doctrine, false teaching associated with that because they've taken this passage of Scripture and said, well, that, that means right before Jesus comes again, the spirit of Elijah. It doesn't say that. It says just the opposite. And, and why they've done that, I don't know. But listen to this. You can, it's not hard to figure out. And when they ask him, what do you teachers of the law say Elijah must come first? Why do you say that? Jesus replied, 
to be sure, Elijah does come first and restores all things. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? But I tell you, Elijah has come, and they've done to him everything they wished, just as it's written about him. So he was, he, and I could go ahead and read what he's saying there. The same spirit of Elijah that was given in a double portion to Elisha was then given to John the Baptist. And that's why Jesus could say, he ended up baptizing Jesus, you recall. And that's why he could say, Jesus could say, of all the prophets, there's none greater than John. Because John had received that spirit of Elijah. Now let's get back to Elijah because he's the real exciting guy that I want to talk about today. He's my kind of guy. And uh, he didn't even take his clothes off. He, he did it because of his bravery in confronting evil. In this particular case, evil was the existing king. You see what happened? And I've got to keep trucking here. Quickly go through it. When Solomon died, he was replaced by his son Rehoboam. Rehoboam uh, took the advice of the youngsters rather than listen to the old codgers. And that's usually what gets people into trouble. And, and because we've made the mistakes and we know them when, and we're trying to keep you from getting them. So he, and, he, and the advice of the young people was, hey, if you think Solomon was tough on people raising taxes and so on and forth, you watch and see what we do. The result was the 10 northern tribes withdrew and formed what's called Israel with the capital of Samaria. Jerusalem stayed the capital of Judea. And so it was split. And, and so the people in the north sent to Egypt and got a guy by the name of Jeroboam to come. He was an enemy of Saul, Solomon to come up and be their king. He brought with them the, the religion of the pagan religion of the Egyptians. That's why he put a golden calf in two different places and caused people to worship it. Then he was succeeded in time by a guy named Ahab. Ahab was a politician. And uh, he, 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 would, he said, well, let's just make it even for everybody. You can, if you want to worship Baal, you worship Baal. If you want to worship Yahweh, you can worship Yahweh. It's okay. And so all of, the, all of this uh, led to a confrontation between God's man, Elijah, who was a Tishbite. Tishbite, that's important to say because that's way on the other side of the, uh, of the Sea of Galilee and the Jordan River. So it would be difficult for Ahab, to get to Ahab and Jezebel to get to him for a safety purpose. He brought over and he then was to confront, uh, God had told him, your job is to confront the king. Now understand this. Confronting a king, if the king didn't like it, was a death sentence. He had the total power of life and death. And here in, in 1 Kings, and, and by the way, 1 and 2 Kings originally was just one book, and that, but it was later divided to make it easier for us. And, uh, and it's the story primarily of Elijah and Elisha, and those two guys together performed, and as in Scripture, more miracles than anybody else between Moses and Jesus. They were, they were really miracle workers and exceptional people, very dramatic. It was Elijah who I thought was a better weatherman than Al Roker. Because if you, you recall, he, he said, here's what's going to happen to Ahab when he confronted Ahab. And we'll see that in a minute. 
he actually came to Ahab, and Ahab went to meet him, and they had a conversation. And he said, here's the way it's going to be. It's not going to rain for three and a half years. And it'll only rain when I say so, because God had told him that's the way it'll be. And so they had a horrible drought, and people were dying of starvation. And, and, and to make matters worse, you know, he, he, there was tension then between the, in the religious world. Horrible tension. And uh, the, the, the thing was getting out of hand. And, uh, uh, but here in, it's, in, it's here in the 17th chapter of 1 Kings. It said, now Elijah the Tishba. By the way, do you know what the word Elijah means in English? If it's translated from Elijah to English, his name means Yahweh is God. Now keep that in mind because that's going to become his, his literal translation of the word Elijah means Yahweh is God. Yahweh is God. Keep that foremost in your mind because it's going to come back and haunt us here in just a minute. Here in the 18th chapter... Uh, well, we'll go down to what? Verses 16, 17 in that area. So Obadiah, one of the prophets, in, went to meet Ahab and told him. And Ahab went to meet Elijah. When he saw Elijah, he said to him, Is that you, you troubler of Israel? Because Elijah had been preaching things that uh, Jezebel in particular didn't like. Elijah replied to the king, I have not made trouble for Israel, but you and your family have, meaning his wife. You have abandoned the, Lord, abandoned the Lord's command and have followed the Baal. Now he says, summons the people from all over Israel and meet me on Mount Carmel and bring that bunch of thieves. They were the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets. 850 altogether, and bring them with you. And we'll go up here, and we'll have a contest. You have to choose, and your people will have to choose between Baal and Yahweh. They have to choose. Here's, and, and so word, here's what it says. So Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Elijah then went before the great crowd that was gathered there and saying, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal is God, follow him. And you know what the result of the people was? Silence. They said nothing. They didn't take a stand. It got him into trouble. So Elijah said, here's the deal. You meet us all up here, and here's what we'll do. We'll have a little contest. You take a bull, I'll take a bull. And on Mount Carmel, there was an altar of God to Yahweh that had been built probably under Solomon that had deteriorated. He goes back and restores it. And he says, but before I make my offering, you, you cut up your bull, put it on your offering, and ask God, and, 
if the fire will fall from heaven and consume it. If God will, if Baal would take it, have at it. Actually, Elijah was kind of a feisty old sucker. They got to praying, Baal, come down and assume your offering, take your offering, so on and so forth. Nothing happened. Finally, they cut themselves and to offer blood offering to get them to do something. And Elijah said, hey, maybe he's asleep. Why don't you yell louder? And he kept taunting them, just actually having a good time with them. And finally, they gave up. And Elijah said, okay, put to, to his helpers, chop my bull up get 12 stones representing the 12 tribes of Israel, put them on there, and bring, keep bringing some water to pour on it, put ahead a little ditch around it, even poured so much water that the ditch was full. And then he said, Lord, accept your, and the, accept your offering. And God consumed the offering, and it got so cockeyed hot that even the water steamed and, and, and disappeared. Now, when that happened, he then said to the crowd of people, now where do you stand? Now where do you stand? Because it said, Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, the soil, even licked up the water in the trench. And when all the people saw this, they fell on their face. These are thousands of people. Fell on their face and cried, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. But that really wasn't what they said. That's the translation of what they said. What they really said was, Elijah, Elijah. That's Hebrew. That's his Hebrew name. When they translated it in English, it's the Lord, he is God. And they were screaming out, Elijah. And you can kind of remember, you can kind of bet he was doing the boogaloo there as they were hollering, Elijah, Elijah. And then he said, you know, Kill the prophets of Baal. And they did that. <coughs> and he confronted Ahab again. And he said, Ahab, since Baal, the, 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 the god Baal, the pagan god Baal, was the god of the weather and of fertility and the raising of crops, that was what Baal was so god over. So Elijah said, how's it going since you haven't had any rain for a while? And he said, by the way, you get rain when I say it's getting rain, and I'm saying it's going to rain. So he sent his servant out, because up on Mount Carmel, I've stood there several times, you can actually see, if you can see through the trees, you can see the Mediterranean. And he said to his servant, hey, you go look and see if there's a cloud coming. And he said, no, I don't see anything. Go look again. Finally, he came back and he said, I see a cloud about the size of a man's hand out over the Mediterranean. <laughs> Elijah said to Ahab, you better get going on your chariot because before you get to Samaria, you're going to be mud up to your knees. So what he was doing was demonstrating that Baal had no authority at all, that God and only God was in charge of the weather. Providing crops, providing food. <coughs> where, the, where they kill those prophets, there was a river that runs from the drainage off Mount Carmel all the way down to the Sea of Galilee. It's called the River Kishon, and it runs through the valley of Jezreel. 
The Valley of Jezreel, some people say, is the richest and most fertile soil in all the world. It is the breadbasket of Israel. And the crops there in the spring, late spring and summer, are absolutely beautiful. I've often wondered if we have a preacher on the face of the earth today who would stand up to the rulers of our country and look them straight in the face and say, you're, you're troubling our country. Billy Graham actually said before he died that the one great thing that he was sorry about is that he allowed the rulers of our country to use him rather than him holding them accountable. He said that before he died. I don't know of a preacher today who has the unmitigated gall to stand up before the leaders of our country, Republican, Democrat, Independent, whatever, look them straight in the face and say, guys, you're messing up this country and we need to repent and get things straightened out. Now, there was a time, before my time really, when we had preachers who would do that. I was a youth minister, as I told you, in Columbus, Indiana, and in and over, well over 100 years, they only had three preachers, Z.T. Sweeney, W.H. Book, and T.K. Smith, and I served under Brother Smith. And he's the one that told me this story. He said, when W.H. Book was the preacher here, Bartholomew County there in Indiana was dry. They, they didn't serve alcohol. Result was they had a whole bunch of bootleggers. Now, for you young ones may not know what a bootlegger is, but uh, your parents can tell you. And the, boot, and the head bootlegger, and I got a hustle here, the head bootlegger died. And they wanted to embarrass Brother Book because about once a month he would French fry the bootleggers from the pulpit. The head guy, and so to embarrass him, they called him up and said, could we have his funeral there at Tabernacle Church. And Brother Book said, well, yeah, bring him on. And, and we don't do that here, but then and in most places for a long time, you brought the body in and you laid it out up front and, and the, it was left open all through the preaching and at the end everybody walked through and faked like they were sad to see him go and all that kind of thing. But anyway... When they brought the body in, they got the, the, the music and everything done with. In the Tabernacle Church, it had an European-type pulpit. You actually mounted the pulpit, went up steps, and, you know, your word of God came down on the people. And uh, Brother Book came down there, stood at the head of the casket, and said, this is such and such and such, he's in hell. And the rest of you bootleggers are going to go there to join him unless you repent and turn to the Lord. And for about an hour, over an hour, he just roasted them good. What I'm saying is, I don't know of many preachers, and I know a lot of preachers. I don't know of many preachers who would have the guts to do it. Now, I don't really know why, but somewhere along the line... We have lost the prophetic call to hold whoever it is accountable for sin. We're, we're now in the midst of what they call Pride Month. And it, we're acting as though homosexuality is not a sin. 
And we even have churches who are supporting it. And, and uh, even though nearly all of us somewhere in our family probably have someone who's either a lesbian or a homosexual, so there's no room for pointing fingers, but that should not, that does not release us from the responsibility of preaching what the Bible says. And all you got to do is read the first chapter of the book of, uh, of Romans. You don't have to go far. It's in chapter 1. You can find Romans. You got it. Here's what it says. I'll cut it down because the clock is running. Therefore God gave them over to sinful desires of their hearts, to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lust. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. Perversion is not my term. It's here in the Word of God. So you, you, we have to say, okay, and I have, you would be shocked at the number of homosexual friends that I have, but that doesn't give me, just because I like them and they're friends, doesn't give me the right to skip or to overlook the Word of God. And when we talk about it, I'm, I'm given the freedom to say, you know, I view it as sin. Because I have a friend who was converted after having lived in a homosexual lifestyle for several years, was converted at Melody Land Church in California, a Pentecostal church, God love him. And, and he came home and he married a woman to have a family and I get a, a thing from him about three times a year he's teaching a Sunday school class and he's wanting me to check it and, and highlight it and send it back to him you cannot tell me that like any other sin the, the, the power of God and the blood of Jesus isn't sufficient to save to overcome and to bring them back to a normal healthy relationship with each other I believe that with all my heart. I think with God, it is absolutely true in Scripture and easy to quote when he said, with God, nothing is impossible. And so it's not going to be well received. I understand that. But it is the Word of God. It is the Word of God. And I stand on it. You know, after Elijah had confronted Ahab, he was exhausted and then Jezebel, by the way, Jezebel's name actually means unmarried. Now, you can do with that whatever you want to, but that, that's the literal meaning of, of her name. She, anyway, she said, I'm going to kill him. I'm going to kill that guy. And so he took off running. He went all the way through Judea, down into the desert, all the way to Mount Horeb. And if you remember, Mount Horeb is the mountain in the Sinai range where Moses received the Ten Commandments. And he was there sitting under a juniper tree, just worn to a frazzle. And, and, uh, and he said, you know, I'm the only one left. He was feeling sorry. He was tired and feeling sorry for himself. And, uh, and, and, and here's where... You know, what he really needed, and I put this in writing just so you know I said it, he needed a hot fudge Sunday and a good nap. 
I'm telling you, a good nap can can make you feel really, really good. You give me 45 minutes, used to be 20 minutes, but now it's 45, and, and I'm ready to whip the world. It makes all the difference in the world. That's what Elijah needed. And it was then that God whispered to him. He said, hey, this isn't over. I got work for you to do. Get up and go back home. I want you to, I want you to select Elisha to replace you. I want you to uh, uh, select another king. And I got things for you to do. Now get up and go. Now, since time is up, I, I have to do this. The people there had to make a choice. They had an option. Do you, do you worship the Lord or do you worship the Baal? Folks, here's where we are. You and I are at a crossroads and we're going to have to make a choice. We really are. And that choice isn't going to be easy. It isn't going to be easy. Because there are people who need to be held accountable on both sides of the political ledger, on, on all of our media stinks. They're all sold out to one party or the other. When, at least when I was a kid, I was led to believe we had, on our little radio, every evening we heard Gabriel Heater in the news. He obviously and said that he was a Republican, da-da-da-da-da. And at that time, the Republicans pandered to the rich people. There was another guy named H.V. Kaltenborn who came on, and he said he was a Roosevelt Democrat, and he was for the poor people, and he generally was. Then there was Lowell Thomas in the news, and he didn't take up for anybody. He just read the news, and he's the one. And we don't have a Lowell Thomas. You know, Fox is sold out to the Republicans. The rest of them are sold out to the Democrats, and we don't get the truth. You know, they call each other liars, but they never say what they're lying about. Anybody that calls you a liar without telling you what you're lying about ought to have his throat cut. He's just, he is practicing what he accuses other people of doing. It's a sad situation, and we are sit in a position where we're going to have to take a, take a stand. We're going to have to. And the options are clear. It isn't Democrat and Republican. It isn't. It is a secular, semi-Marxist government or one that honors the church that's written in our Constitution. And that's going to be the fight. And it could get to be bloody because communists kill people and it doesn't hurt their conscience. And the Marxism is on the march. And the reason we need to take a stand is Marxism is anti-God. They're atheistic and proud of it. And our children are being forced down. And, and let me tell you, folks, I don't know how we're going to do it. But we're going to have to start our own school system, and we're getting close to the place where we can afford it. I feel sorry for school people today. The government is imposing upon them stuff that they have to do that they really don't want to do. Teachers have so much bureaucratic crap to, that they have to live with that they don't have time to teach. I mean, they, they're in a real pickle. But we're in getting close to the position where here, in, at least in the state of Ohio, I think they call it the backpack thing, if I remember it. I was anything in, in Columbus where they explained it all, but when you get to 85, you can remember about half of it. And so what they're talking about is the possibility that, let's, that your tax money, and I know I'm over time, but you need to hear it. 
they're saying that the tax money, and let's assume that it's, say, $5,000 a student. I don't really know what it is. Just pick that number. That, that money, that tax money, will follow the student and not the organization. So if that's the case and, and we were to start a class of, uh, and the, some of you teachers have told me the ideal class would be, of, of say, little guys would be 17 to 20, if you really wanted to go, do it with excellence and not adjust it, dumb it down, but hold high standards and help them to reach those standards, if that happens, that, that money becomes available, we should be hung out and quartered if we don't start our own school, train our own children, and do it with, with excellence. And this is not bad-mathing teachers. I was a teacher. My wife was a teacher. My mother was a teacher. But things have changed that they have no control over. And many of you who are teaching in public schools, if we can hit the lottery, we'll pay you better to come here and train our children in the way they should go so that they won't depart from it when they get older. That's what the scripture says. Now, I, I know I'm past t time, but the, the teachers didn't have enough time with their students back there, and I'm just thinking of them. <laughs> Feel I, you still, in the, but anyway, there's a passage of scripture that I'm gonna close with that's found in the 11th chapter of the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews, the 11th chapter in particular, is sometimes called the Hall of Fame of the Faithful. And it spells some things out here that are pretty clear. It talks about God's faithful prophets and preachers. And he describes them this way. Some faced jeers and flogging, while others were chained and put in prison. Some were stoned. Some were sawed in two. By the way, tradition says that Isaiah was sawed in two. They were put to death by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. And then this is this word. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in the deserts and the mountains and in the caves and the holes in the ground. They were all commended for their faith. Yet, none of them received it while they were still alive. Because God had something better planned for them. I can say this without fear of contradiction. If there's anything that I would love when I depart this world and trade this thing in for a better one, that I would like to be honestly could be said of me, whether said or not, that somebody, my kids, they're just picking out a cheap nursing home. But what I would like to earn the right to be said at my funeral would be the world wasn't worthy of him because of our faith. I can tell you this. I'm not afraid of the penalty that comes from confronting power and sin. I'm not afraid of that. I don't believe that you could earn the statement that the world wasn't worthy of him if we were, you were afraid to take a stand. It can mean nothing for me, but it can mean everything for our country and for our kids. And after all, that's kind of important. Okay, let's pray.
Lord, I want to thank you for the folks who've been patient enough to sit and to listen and maybe be a little discomforted. I pray, Father, that we will develop a group of folks here who will stand for you regardless of the pressure they get from anybody anywhere. And that we'll get to the place where we're willing to put our money where our mouth is for the future of our children, our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren, and for the wonderful country where we've had the privilege to live. I pray that you will dismiss us, Father, with an abiding sense of your presence and that you will take what's been said and allow each of us to mull it over and check the scriptures to see if it's true. We love you, Father, and we want to seek first your kingdom, knowing that the rest of the things will be taken care of by you. We pray that you'll dismiss us now with your richest favor, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. You're free to go. Christ Community Church, located at 25th and Thomas Avenue in Portsmouth, Ohio. Christ Community meets on Saturday at 5 p.m. and Sunday at 10.30 a.m. For more information, visit www.christcommunity.net or check out our Facebook page.